Now we, uh, actually last week we did a, we're, this is the sixth week that we've done a sermon on the Holy Spirit. Y'all been enjoying this series so far pretty good? So la- last week we talked about, last week we talked specifically about the gifts of the Spirit. And it turns out I, I got a lot of testimonies and a lot of reports from people being blessed because there were, there were several people that chose to obey God as He moved them and there were literally some miraculous type things that happened. I mean, so, so I don't know if you, if you experienced that or if, if God gave you a word or something like that happened. But listen, we believe in that. We believe that God is still at work today. God is still moving. He's still using His people in miraculous ways. And one of the big things is whether or not we're going to be open to it and pursue it. The Bible says to desire earnestly, to pursue love and desire earnestly the best gifts. And so it's something that we want to desire and we want to be open to how God is moving, right? Amen. So we talked about gifts of the Spirit last week. We're going to talk about fruit of the Spirit this week. So if you want to, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to stay right in Galatians chapter 5 uh, the entire time. And we'll go, ahead, we'll go ahead and read a little bit of that. Galatians chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 16. I'll read it and then we'll just sort of go through it verse by verse. So, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Man, that's a good list, isn't it? Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's pray together. Father, God, one of the things that we know of a certainty is that you've given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us your Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. Lord, you want to make us like the very image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that through your Word today, you would plant a seed that would begin a deep inner transformation in all of our hearts, God. We give you freedom to speak to us, God, to to, to inspect every area of our lives, and God, to penetrate the depths of our heart and open our ears to hear what you're saying to each of us as individuals and corporately as a body. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the fruit of the Spirit is, is obviously a metaphor, right? Paul's using this metaphor to talk about human growth and transformation. Now, it's always been very interesting to me because you see, you see this idea of, you know, a garden and planting and fruit all throughout Scripture. It's going on. You see this over and over and over again. And even in the beginning, I used to ask this question because God, God created everything that you know in the universe. He created the stars, the planets. He created the earth, the trees, everything that is going on. And then He created man, and man was the apex of His creation, 
We were, the, we were the thing that he centered everything around. All of his love was aimed at this. Matter of fact, whenever he was, he was creating the world, he said, and he, and he saw it and he said that it was good. And then when he created man and he created the material world, he said it was very good. See, he set us a little bit up above other things and above creation, and he actually gave us dominion over his creation. But here's what's so interesting is that God, even in heaven, if we're the apex of his creation, in heaven he's got streets of gold, he's got gates of pearl. He could have literally made us out of anything that he wanted to, but you know what he chose to make us out of? Dirt. Man, that's messed up, isn't it? I'm like, Lord, you could have you made us out of anything. I could be have like pearl inlay, you know, and just like going down my side or anything. I could have like a golden right leg or any with, with joints and ligaments. And I, it could be beautiful what we could be, but he chose to make us out of dirt. And I'm going to tell you the reason I believe that he chose to make us out of dirt is because it's the only thing that can host a seed. See, when God created us, He created us with a particular design. And everything that happens in our life, everything that that goes on in our life takes place within the realm of seed, time, and harvest. That's what He said even in the beginning. And here's what's so interesting is He took Adam and He took Eve, which He formed from the dirt of the earth. And the first place that He placed them, do you know where it was? It was actually in a garden. It was in a garden where they would learn to grow things, where they would learn to nurture and care for things and learn to nurture and care for all of creation. But this garden was called Eden, and Eden meant pleasure. And the Garden of Eden came to represent the human heart. Now, when he put them in the garden, he said, listen, y'all going to have to take care of this garden. Matter of fact, he used two specific words. He says, you're going to have to tend it, and you're going to have to keep it. Literally, what he was saying is you have to guard it to make sure that nothing comes in from the outside to destroy the beautiful things that you're growing here. He said, not only that, if something happens to grow up that seems to be a weed or destructive to the other fruit that is in the garden, he says, you're going to have to cultivate it. You're going to have to do the work of uprooting things in this garden that is going to choke out the fruitfulness of the garden in this, in this place, right? Because then he, then he gives them the commandment and he says, I need you to go and I need you to be fruitful and multiply. See, everything in our lives happens on the basis of seed, time, and harvest. No matter where you're at in life, no matter how jacked up you have been, let me tell you something, I tell people all the time, what happens is when people get into an absolute mess, they want to fix everything within a day or two. And I said, it took you years to get here. It's going to take a little bit of time to get you back out. Because you've been sowing seeds of garbage for years and you have produced a harvest of this thing that is going on in your life. And it's going to take some uprooting. It's going to take some getting to the root of things. It's going to take some chopping down and some cutting down to get this thing. Now, Adam, obviously he blew it. He allowed the serpent to sneak his way into the garden. And the worst thing that could be planted in the garden was planted. And that was the suspicion of whether or not God was even good. That was a lie that was planted into the heart of the human soul where we begin to question whether or not God was trustworthy, whether or not God was good, and from there all evil began to take place. We rebelled against God, we chose sin, sin, evil, hatred, wickedness, all sorts of things, sickness and disease, and ultimately death entered into the world. Then Jesus comes, and He's called the last Adam. And when Jesus comes, He comes and He makes this statement. He says, now unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. He says, but if it dies, it shall produce much fruit. And do you know that he was not actually talking about a literal seed? He was talking about his body. 
And so he died and he was planted in a tomb, guess where? In a garden. And when he was raised from the dead and he came back from the dead, Mary runs to the tomb that morning. And when she's at the tomb, she's weeping because it's the third day. And she's sad about what has happened. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the side of her. And she says, woman, why are you weeping? And it says that Mary supposed that he was the gardener. And I think it's there on purpose. Because what he's saying is, the, what Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden in the beginning, he has come to restore new creation so that you can now become the gardener over your heart. And Jesus is the one. He said, I'm the true vine and my father is the husbandman. He who, who abides in me will bear much fruit. He's saying, I'm bringing a restoration to all creation. And there's been weeds and hatred and sickness and disease and all of these things that have grown up in the human heart and in the garden. There's all these things going on, but I'm bringing restoration and I'm restoring you to your original design and if you will learn to be a gardener once again we can uproot some of this junk and plant some good fruit in creation and all of a sudden the world because of you will look a little bit more like heaven and a little bit less like hell so he's beginning to do this in our life and here's what he says now Paul gets to that with that in mind Paul gets to this point and he's talking about the fruit of the spirit and he lists these nine fruits of the Spirit. Just like there are nine gifts, there are nine fruits. But see, there's a big difference between a gift and a, and a fruit. Because a gift is given to me, right? I don't really even have to do anything to receive it except, except just take it. When somebody hands me a gift, I don't have to work for it. It just happens. This is why it's so interesting because some people will say, well, you know, I, I can't understand why the Lord would use that person in the gift of tongues or interpretation or prophecy or, or use that person in the gift of this. Listen, Gifts are not necessarily based upon a person's character. There have been people who have seen miracles happen in their ministry. There have been people who have seen people get healed. This is even why Jesus begins to say, look, there will be people on the last day that say, Lord, Lord, that cry out, Lord, Lord. And he said, but, but he'll, he'll speak to them and say, I never knew you. Even though they cast out demons, they did miracles, they did great mighty signs and wonders because the gift of the Spirit is different than the actual fruit of your character. And Jesus, said, Jesus did not say that you would know them by their gifts. He said you will know them by their fruits. Now this is where fruits do become more important than gifts. Because you can have a gift. I can have a gift to teach. I can have a gift to preach. But if I go out here and fail morally, not only does it damage me and my family, but it begins to damage an entire group and a body of Christ. And I could get up and have a gift and preach and teach and it sound wonderful, but if I failed morally, it no longer stands for anything, does it? This is why fruit is so important in our lives. And so Paul gets to it, but it's different because a gift is given in a moment of time, but fruit is cultivated over time. And he gives us this condensed version. He says, these are nine things, this list. He's saying, if you are being led by the Spirit and the Spirit of Christ is at work in your life, you are at some level going to begin to see these things growing up. These things are going to begin to happen in your life. But here's what's so interesting. This is the reason he uses the metaphor of fruit. Because how many of y'all, you've, you've ever planted something? Anybody in here? In our generation, we ain't planted nothing. You know what I'm talking about? We just go to McDonald's. That's, that's one of the big issues that we struggle with in our generation is we, we have lived in such a generation where everything is artificially grown and we can go up here and in two seconds get a cheeseburger. We don't know the process behind the lettuce, the process behind the tomato. We don't know the process behind the bread, even the beef. We just get it instantly without having to go through the process. And so we think that we can impose our microwave mindset into a biblical Christianity and it's impossible. 
And the problem is, is that then everybody says, well, Christianity doesn't even work. Because I went to church, I heard a sermon that said, quit fornicating, right? And I went out and I did it again. This stuff don't work. I prayed about it. I said, Lord, I don't want to do it anymore. But I failed again. Didn't work. Do you know that human growth and transformation takes a little bit of time? It's not like a prayer where you just pop something in the microwave and all of a sudden you get it back out. I, people come to me all the time. They say, hey, man, pray for me that I just be delivered from this thing. And yeah, you know what? Sometimes maybe that happens. But I've never personally seen any true transformation happen. Things that happen instantly in a person's life are because they've spent the time of sowing and planting and weeding and gardening. And then all of a sudden they say, and just instantly God did something. I'm thinking, yeah, instantly. You've been seeking God for a year now. Everybody was like, man, I wish God would do me like he did you. You know how you just instantly got set free? I said, I spent a year behind that of seeking God, pursuing God, planting seed, watering, weeding, going at it, working, doing the work. Because if you're going to plant a garden, one thing you're going to understand and learn is that it takes work. Amen? Now, I had to go to some professionals because I ain't never planted a garden. Anybody in here know anything about that? Anybody plant? Anybody, anybody got a garden? Praise God. Y'all know all about it then. It takes work, doesn't it? You're going to put hours in. I mean, Andre, Andrea's granny, she's an all-the-time gardener. You go to her house, she'd be watering something. And so I, we, I asked her, I was like, you know, what's, what's some of the big things that you got to deal with when you're dealing with a garden? And, and she was like, well, you know, wet weather's a huge deal. Weather's maybe the most important thing because you're trying to create this perfect environment for this thing to be able to grow and produce life. But even then, what's, what's maybe even more worse than that, what's maybe even more harmful than that, is you could do everything perfectly. You could have your watering patterns right. You can, have, you, you, you can make sure that everything's being weeded out. And then all of a sudden, you've got a fruit that's juicy and just lovely and everything's going well, and all of a sudden, an animal comes in and eats the thing. Right? That's terrible. You know how mad I'd be? Be killing me some animals. But, that's, but the problem is, Paul's getting at, he's saying, one of the things y'all don't understand is you're not producing an environment in your own heart to be able to grow and cultivate good fruit. And not only that, you got an animal on the loose in your heart called the flesh. And every time you start to grow something up that's in good, your flesh takes back control. And all of a sudden, all of your good fruit is eaten up, torn down, and all messed up. Now, now here's the thing. Has, has anyone ever had success in saying, all right, preacher preached on loving people better. I'm just going to do that and go out and do it well. Anybody? No. You don't, it doesn't happen that way. It's a process of planting the seed, watering the seed, protecting it against predators, making sure nothing that comes out goes in. See, it takes work to grow healthy fruit. And what Paul is talking about, he's, he's using this metaphor to talk about character change. He's saying the Holy Spirit wants to do something in your life where He makes you a totally different person. Matter of fact, you don't even realize who you truly are yet. But if you will allow Him and go through the work of this process of cultivating this fruit, He's going to do an inner work in you that you would not believe. So in verse 16, here's what he says. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, here's another command that is a metaphor. And he's saying, look, we're all on this journey of life, and we're walking. But you have to, you have to begin to choose on this journey of life who you're going to walk with. 
You have to make a choice, a conscious decision on a daily basis of whether or not you're going to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit or you're going to allow every wind and wave of doctrine and influence and circumstance and flesh to drive you away from the life of the Spirit and take you down a path of destruction. He says you're going to have to learn to walk in the Spirit. Now here's, here's what's interesting is, is that the, the, the Bible does not say quit fulfilling the lust of the flesh and then you'll walk in the Spirit. Because so many people I talk to, here's what they say. You say they say, you know, Clay, I would get in church. I would come to small group. I would do these things, but I need to take care of some of these sinful behaviors I've got first. And I tell them that it is actually an impossibility. You cannot overcome sin without first walking in the Spirit. You don't take care of the f- flesh first and then start walking in the Spirit. You start walking in the Spirit, and before long, all of a sudden, the works of the flesh are put to death. You may amen me on that. So what I'm saying is no matter where you're at in your life, don't say, well, I've got to take care of my sin first. I've got to take care of the things I'm struggling with first. No, you walk in the Spirit first. You begin to pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. And before long, the works of the flesh in your life are going to be put to death. And you're not going to have them active in your life anymore. See, there's a battle going on in your life, right? And Paul says, in Ephesians, he says, when you believed in Jesus... The very presence of Christ was placed in you. He says you were sealed, you were stamped, you were marked with the Spirit of God. And He's at work in your life. But here's the big issue is you have control over how much of your life the Spirit is going to transform. That's good there. The Spirit of God, if you are a believer in Christ, has took up residence on the inside of you, but you have control over how much of your life that same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is going to transform. Because if you, let me tell you something, if you plant a garden and you go out and you plant some tomatoes and you plant all these things and you say, well, I planted a seed, boys, I believe I'll go inside, and you come back out three months later, do you think that there's going to be any fruit there? Do you think there's going to be any? There could be, but if there is, it's going to be eat up with mold. Some of it's going to be rotted. It's not going to be very fruitful and juicy. It's going to be all messed up. And some of you, I'm telling you, you come to Sunday uh, and you hear a message and you think somehow from hearing that one message that you're just going to produce this outrageous fruit. And I'm telling you, you may hear a message, but you're going to have to go home and do some cultivation. You're going to have to go home and tend the garden. There are going to be days when animals are going to try to get in and eat some junk, and you're going to have to say, no, you ain't coming into my garden, son. The Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. See, you have to make sure that you're the one guarding this, cultivating, make sure, making sure that bitterness, false doctrine, anger, and certain things are not getting into your heart and taking root, because if they do, it's going to choke out the life of the good fruit that, is ta- that God wants to bring forth in your life. So he says, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh if you walk in the Spirit. And when he says flesh, he's not just talking about your physical body. Physical body sometimes will give you issues. Anybody amen me on that? Like every morning when I wake up, you know, my body is crying out for two things. More sleep, and if somehow my spirit says, but you've got to get up and talk to God a little bit, and, and, and somehow overpowers the flesh, well, then I'll be walking up to go talk to God, you know, and just start, start out this, this talk with God, and, and, and I'm getting up, but I'm still tired. And then all of a sudden, my body says, but you got to have coffee first, my man. You know, and, and so, so the body is already a, 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 an issue. But the flesh, some Bibles will interpret it or, or translate it the sinful nature. 
See, when your body was created, it was created a good thing. God created your body and he said, it's very good. All the material world is very good. This is a very good thing. Your body's a good thing. The issue is, is your body was never meant to be the one in control. And most people allow their bodies to dictate what they're going to do every day of their lives. And this is why fasting is such a biblical spiritual principle because it's the one thing that finally you say no to your body. You're not in control. You don't rule my life. I rule my life. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do, body. Right? And so we, we begin to live a spirit-led life and all of a sudden we are the ones dictating what our body does and not our body dictating what we do. But see, it's not just our body, but it's our mind. Flesh is also your mind. And, it's, and, it, and, and we were, were created good, but sin came in, it was vandalized, everything was broken and fallen down. And so now we're dealing with this flesh. And here's what he says in verse 17 and 18. He says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, And the spirit against the flesh. It's this picture of a tug of war going on on the inside of you. On one side of you, you got this flesh, this monster, this animal that's pulling. And on the other side, you got Jesus, you know, the spirit of God that that is pulling as well. And the truth is, the spirit of God would never lose a battle. But he can only inhabit so much of you as you're going to allow him to inhabit. And Paul is saying... He's saying they're they're warring against one another and they're contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now he says there's a battle going on on the inside of you and probably whenever you're faced with a certain situation or a circumstance, probably the one that's going to win the battle is the one that you've been feeding the most currently. Amen? See, because you get in a situation, it could be with your spouse. I mean, man, that's probably your best indicator of like when the flesh is operating. Anybody amen me? Like Because you are your realest self with the one you love the most. Anybody can come to church and look at somebody they barely know and smile and be like, hello, brother, how are you? God bless you. I got a word from the Lord last night for you. You know, you can do all that. But then you go home and you're with your spouse and you're your real self and all, and all of a sudden you got all this pent-up frustration and anger and you just unleash. Anybody amen me on that, yeah? Right? So you can tell, really, the flesh will reveal itself most actively around the people that you love the most, which is probably the saddest thing in the Christian life, isn't it? The people we love the most should be the people we love the most. <laughs> that was good. So then he says... All right, we're going, we're, he says, we're going, we're at, he said, just so you're sure. He said, it's not enough for me to say the flesh and the spirit. He said, let me define some terms for you. I'm going to tell you something. I'm getting ready to go through this list of terms. And whenever I first became a Christian, this was probably the most beneficial thing in my life to actually define what was destructive and harmful because I lived a, a, an ungodly life and I could justify every sin that I committed somehow. People are good at it, aren't they? Like, you figure out a way to justify every sin you commit. So I read through this list, and it really just made me have a bad couple weeks after, after this. So here's what he says. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. He said, which are, and he's going to list the, the, the first four here, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. Now he calls them not fruits of the flesh, but he calls them works of the flesh because this is just what you naturally do. Nobody had to teach you how to be selfish, did they? Y'all ever watch a two-year-old, three-year-old growing up? Nobody had to teach them how to be selfish. It's in their nature. They're working it out on a daily basis. These are the works of the flesh, our sinful nature. 
And so he says, these are works. He says, but here's the first group. He's actually going to break down the works of the flesh into categories. And the first category that he lists is sexual. Now, every time I talk about sex in here, somebody says it got a little PG-13 in there this morning. Let me go ahead and forewarn you. It's going to get a little bit PG-13 here. Okay? But here's the issue is that the world is constantly talking about sex. And if the church and the people of God don't talk about it, then they're going to take advantage every chance they can get to defile people. Because even what I notice is that people in the church that have even called themselves Christians for years still have a terrible idea of what sex is really all about. It's a holy thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It was created by God. But the problem is, is the entire world is abusing it and they don't understand what's going on. So this is the reason, my personal opinion, why Paul lists, his se- lists sexual behavior first. Because he says, if you want to really figure out whether or not the, the flesh is controlling your life and not the Holy Spirit, he says, well, the first place you need to look is in your sexuality. If everything's all jacked up and broken there, odds are the flesh is in control. Amen. So here's what he says. He lists these things, and he, he says adultery. We all know what that is, right? That is, that is having sex with somebody other than your, than your marriage partner. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Lewdness is this word. In some translations, it's translated debauchery, but that is a complete lack of inhibition and self-control in regards to any sexual decisions I make. This is what the world has come to now. They are, they are living in a state of absolute debauchery. They'll have sex with anybody at the drop of a hat. Right, we'll go get drunk, have a party, and we'll just have sex with whoever it just turns out to be. That's debauchery. It means that you just make terrible decisions sexually all the time. Right? So, so he lists that, but, but then he says, he begins to point all this out, but here's what he says. In an overarching term, it's called sexual immorality, and that is any act of sex that is not protected within the boundaries of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality, period. Right? Nobody, that's a hard one to amen on for some, but I know it's, it'll be all right. We'll get through this. So it's the first place to look. Now, here's, here's one of the big issues why this is a problem. is because in America, like I said, I've even read books where now psychologists, doctors, and people are like that are saying that the mentality, the Christian view of sex is archaic, it's oppressive, Right? Because the American view of sex is it's just an emotional thing and it's like an animal instinct and it's, and it's just a pleasurable exercise between two consenting adults. And that we should not suppress that. We should allow people to choose for themselves what's right sexually. But here's what I'm trying to, trying to, trying to tell everybody and trying to, the Bible is trying to make sense of is he's saying, how often have people made these sexual decisions and it actually lead to good? You know how many... Babies have had to have been aborted because of bad sexual decisions. You know how many times marriages have been absolutely destroyed, and not only marriages destroyed, but now the children's lives of those marriages destroyed because, because of bad sexual decisions. See, it's destructive. Now, now here's, the, here's the thing. Probably everybody in this room has been touched by that, right? All of us have made poor decisions in that area. 
So God is not bringing this up to condemn us and make us feel terrible because I believe even in my own life that He took my poor decisions early on in life. He washed me clean. He forgave me. He redeemed me. He restored me back to my original design. And He said, now, son, you're a new creation and you can do things the right way. And you're clean and you're new and you can make a change. So listen, no matter what you've done in your past, there is nothing that God says that's, that's irredeemable, that's irreparable. He says, we can, make a, we can repair things right now. We can redeem things right now. We can heal you right now. Nobody has ever gone too far. No matter how far they've gone, Jesus says, I want to heal you. I want to redeem you. I won't push you out. But I need you to know moving forward, if you're going to live my life, that this is going to be something that is going to creep into your garden and destroy your life if you're not careful. See, but the Christian view of sex is actually the opposite. It's the Christian view of sex is that it's such a profound thing that it is mentally emotionally and physically the binding of not only not only the, the, the person's bodies but their soul, their mind and their emotions. So much so that the Bible actually says that a, a man and a wife shall leave their father and mother and the two shall join to one another and, and they shall become one. Now this is crazy because people have sex with a lot of people and he says when, you, when that happens, he says you actually become one with that person. Most of us, except for God setting us free, what's happened is we, we bring several people into our marriage relationship because we become one with them. That's what Paul's trying to lay out here. He's trying to say, no, this is a covenant between one man and one woman. And again, don't get me wrong. No matter what's happened in the past, God can heal it and restore it and set you on a new path. It's just that we have to still define these standards in order to live from them from here on out once we make a decision for Jesus. And he says, now this is a, it's a great gift of God, but it is to be protected within the covenant of marriage. It's not just a piece of paper. It is literally the uniting body, soul, and spirit of two individuals so that those two individuals have the most amount of pleasure they can possibly have in a life together. And from that place of pleasure they actually produce new life and it's a holy thing and God gives it as a gift to people who choose to make a covenant with one another now I'm going to say something that's a, certainly PG-13 but I don't care so a woman is even designed by God to have something on the inside of her anatomy called a hymen and it causes blood to take place whenever they consummate the marriage right now in the Middle Eastern culture over here and over here's the thing in America, you know what? We're the most perver perverted culture, but it also makes us the culture that will not talk about sex because we feel uncomfortable. Because we're, it's because we've so perverted it. Y'all agree with me this morning, y'all just saying, I wish you'd shut up. We have so perverted sex that we can't even have healthy conversations about it. And in Middle Eastern cultures, what would happen, even in Hebrews, sometimes when they would get married, because... Uh, because virginity and marriage was such a holy thing before God, they would actually bring them together, and on the marriage night, they would send them into a room, and once they consummated the marriage, they would bring the bed sheet out, and there would be blood on it because it was a blood covenant. God made it so that whenever sex took place, you entered into a blood covenant with the individual. You realize that? Everything God does, He does in covenant. And when you consummate a marriage like that, it is not just a piece of paper. It is not just a, a legal binding. When you have sex with a person, you have made a covenant with that person. And it's a difficult thing, right? 
It's a challenging thing, but you have to commit. Now, here's, the, here's another issue. you got the word fornication, right? The word in the Greek language is pornea. It, it's the word we actually get pornography from, obviously. And it means to sell off sexual purity. That's what it means. And Jesus talks about this a lot, and he gets pretty upset about it, actually. Because he, he makes this statement. He says, now, he says, now, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, any man who looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he, go, then he goes even further, and if that wasn't hard enough, he says, and if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off. And he says, it'd be better for you to enter into life, into eternal life maimed, than, than to enter into destruction having both your eye and your hand, right? And now, I don't think that he's literally saying you need to cut out your eye and cut off your hand. He's just saying this is how serious I am about this. This is something that you need to pay attention to. And he's saying, okay, y'all want to pay attention to the fact that you're not having sex with somebody other than your spouse. But he says, I want to go deeper than that because the root issue of adultery is not the very act of going out and having sex with somebody other than your spouse. The root issue of adultery is you looking upon a woman with lust in your heart. Now, here's what he's not saying. He is not saying... That you look once at a person and recognize, okay, this is an attractive person. Anybody ever done that? God, nobody's done that. Y'all are holy this morning. Wow. Now, I, I didn't expect anybody to raise their hand. Praise God. That's scary. I shouldn't have done that to you. But no, here's the thing. We would not even, we would, the way we're chemically made by God is that when we look at a person, we recognize that, okay, they're attractive. It's what, it's what attracts us to one another so that we end up following through on the marriage, right? So he's saying it's not sin to look at a person or look at something and recognize, okay, this is beautiful. It's, but he's saying it's when you see that and then you continue to look in order to fuel your own selfish sexual desire. It's not the first look that gets you, it's the second one. Anybody amen me on this? So he's trying to go further upstream and get to the root uh, of the issue of the heart. Is he saying, what happens? And here's the reason why I believe that he gets so upset. Now, we were talking about this, me and some of my buddies last night. And one of my buddies said, well, you know, I heard a guy say that, that you know, boys, it's, uh, it's not... It's not uh, he said, basically, hey, God made them. They're beautiful creatures. You can look, but you can't touch. That's all there is to it. Well, see, Jesus' standard is a little bit higher than that. He's saying if you're looking to the point where you're now fueling your desire, your heart is already in the state of adultery. And, he's, and it's not that it's easy. It's just he's saying this is the real condition that you need to take part in and you need to understand because here's what he's saying. He's saying that when you look upon a woman like that, when you look upon a person like that, you objectify that person, you dehumanize that person, you degrade that person, and in the process you dehumanize yourself. Because what you just made a statement of is that people exist on the planet, planet for the purpose of your own sexual pleasure. You don't have a relationship with this person, you don't know this person, but yet you're using that person as an object to fuel your own lustful desires. And that's why he gets so upset about it, because 
It is a violation of the greatest ethic in the kingdom, and that is love. Because love always honors, always protects, love always elevates, and love looks at another person and says, that is a human being created in the image of God, and I don't have the right to defile their humanity and their, and their value and their worth in God. Therefore, even though they're beautiful, I can even recognize they're beautiful. And this is, this is why now you, you, we, can't, we can't even tell people sometimes they're beautiful because of this sexual weirdness. You know what I'm saying? We have to protect ourselves from it because it's hard. Because every time somebody says that, we just assume that they're crossing the line and they're trying to enter into something sexual. And odds are they probably are because we live in such a defiled world. Amen? Man, I'm preaching good this morning, ain't I? PG-13. I'll tell you this too. There is no greater emotional destructive scarring then when it happens on a sexual level, whether it's abuse or adultery or any of, the, any of those things, those things, there's no, nothing that is more destructive and harmful to the human soul. And I'm telling you, when our sexual desires are misdirected, for some reason, I don't know why, but we turn into absolute animals. Anybody agree with me on that? So let's move on to the next one. Verse 20, it says, idolatry and sorcery are the first two. Now see, with the first one, we're, we're sexual, right? Then he breaks off, and the, the second two are actually spiritual. Idolatry is about giving our allegiance to something that is not the one true God. Idolatry is choosing to worship an object that is, that is different than God. And then the next one, he says, is, is witchcraft or sorcery. Now, sorcery or witchcraft is, is, is taking spiritual beings or spiritual realities, and using them to gain power and control over people and the world around us. Now, the spirit of witchcraft can manifest in people because they're very controlling and very manipulative people. Anybody ever met anybody like that, right? Very controlling and very manipulative people. Now, obviously, there are literal forms of witchcraft where people practice sorcery and witchcraft. But do you know what the Greek word for sorcery or witchcraft is right here in this, in this context? It's the Greek word pharmakia. You know what word that is for us here in English? Pharmacy. Yeah, it's the exact same word. And if you look in a Greek dictionary at this word for witchcraft or sorcery, the first definition of of it is interaction with unclean spirits. The second definition is the use of or administering of mind-altering substances. This is why when the one, you know, like if you watch Disney, those old, I remember this big witch, you know, she had a nose like that with a big wart on it, and she'd always be stirring in the cauldron. She's mixing up a potion. Why? She's a witch. She's making a potion that will affect you, that will change you. And let me tell you something. Our world, you know, in the book of Revelation, it says that the world shall be deceived because of their pharmakias. That's messed up. Because of their sorceries, because of their witchcraft. He's saying that literally, he's not, he, so, so the practice of witchcraft is a work of the flesh, but also this entails drug use as a work of the flesh because when you take any mind-altering substance into your body, including marijuana, because there's a lot of Christians that are figuring out ways to justify that, right? Well, this ain't hurt nobody. God grew it. God made a great white shark, but you ain't going to swim with it. You ingest those things into your body and they alter your state of consciousness. What you are doing is you are entering into a spiritual realm and dimension where you are saying, I give anything other than the one true God legal access into my soul in this moment. And you open yourself to all sorts of confusion, 
all sorts of lies, all sorts of bondage, and you learn ways to separate yourself from God and keep your distance from Him because you've been engaged in those types of things. Drugs are dangerous, folks. Say no to them. In both cases of those, my spiritual reality is I'm going to determine what I worship. Now it goes to this, this, third, this third set. Here's what he says. He says, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. Now all of these are relational, right? These are relational and, and they break down our personal character flaws that lead us to unhealthy relationships. So he's saying, look, you can check your sexual life. You can check your spiritual life. See if Jesus is actually first in your life because if He's not, the flesh is at work. Then he says, now you can check your relational life. If you want to see if the flesh is at work in your life, check your relationships. Obviously, the first place you're going to check is your marriage because if that ain't working, ain't nothing going to be working good. You can fake everything else, but if your marriage is not working right, the flesh is at work, okay? So it's relational. And he says these are, th- th- these are things that happen relationally. The first one, he says, is hatred. Now, the word there is literally enmity, and it means to have enemies or to be of a mindset that says this person is an enemy to me. Then he says contentions. Contentions are literally just I'm all the time quarreling with people, all the time arguing. I'll I'll let that sit for a minute. Disputes, right? Then he says jealousies. Jealousies are are rivalries or wanting what another has. Somebody said one time, you know, people say this a lot to me. They say, well, you know, I don't know about this God because the Bible says he's a jealous God. And jealousy is sinful. We all know that. And first thing I say, well, the reason you know jealousy is sinful because you got it from the book that God wrote. Ain't nobody else, you know what I'm saying? Ain't nobody else saying that. But God is jealous over you. See, if, I, if I'm jealous over you, it's for my sake. It's because I don't want anybody else to have you. I want to have you all to myself, and I'm jealous over you. But God is jealous over you for your sake because He knows if you worship anything other than Him, it will destroy you. His jealousy is a, our jealousy is a jealousy that flows from sinfulness. His jealousy is a jealousy that flows from love. It's totally different. It's the same way our wrath is different. God's wrath flows from love, whereas our wrath usually flows from sin. Now, so he says jealousies. Then he says outbursts of wrath. And literally, that sounds like people, I know people vent their anger all the time and say, well, uh, you know, I get angry sometimes, but at least I don't have outbursts of wrath. Literally, it means venting your anger. Venting your anger. Then he says selfish ambitions, and this is seeking of followers by means of gifts on my life or to exalt myself. And when I read this, I thought to myself, you know, it's so funny because people who do that better now in our generation, better than the world even does, is actually the church. Amen? Pastors, leaders, people like that, they will spend most of their time in selfish ambition exalting themselves in their church above Jesus Christ. And they use their gifts in order to get followers to themselves rather than to make followers of Jesus Christ. Selfish ambitions. I'm in it for me and not for the kingdom. Then he says, dissensions, which are divisions or standing apart. Now obviously, divisions happen more in the church. Look, about every church... Including, this, I'm just going to go ahead and say it this morning because you know what? About every church in this county, including this one, has come from a church split. And that's not something that anybody's proud of, 
But it points out the fact that the flesh is at work. People are at work constantly causing division. And let me tell you something. You don't want to fall into that category. Proverbs chapter 6 says that one of the things that God hates is one who sows discord among brethren. And I know that's a sensitive subject for people because almost everybody's been a part of something. I'm telling you something. It hurts so bad when people get involved in that. And God needs to heal us from that because the problem is is when those divisions happen, it leaves a root of bitterness which actually leads to us being divisive further on in our life. And that's one thing that we cannot be in the church. The Spirit is always looking to bring unity and not division. So then he says heresies. Now heresies obviously are false doctrine, but the Greek word literally means to have a strong, distinct opinion. That my opinion in this area is so strong. Let me tell you something. You know, people talk about John Calvin a lot and how he was a great theologian. Do you know that John Calvin at one point there was a man named Michael Servetus that, that, that preached and he, and he denied the Trinity and John Calvin had Michael Servetus burnt at the stake alive and put to death because he denied the Trinity. So let me tell you something. Even though John Calvin was actually standing for what was true doctrine, at that point he stepped into heresy because he superseded the law of love above everything else. He put a man to death for false doctrine. Y'all know people who are like that right now? They just soon put you to death over false doctrine. I'm preaching better than y'all shouting. Then, then he says, verse 21, envy. This is ill will. Let me t- envy is messed up. Now I'm going to check this with you. Any of y'all ever been envious? Jealousy is different than envy. Envy is when somebody does something good or somebody has something good happen in their life, I'm angry and I don't like it. And not only that, it is that whenever something bad happens to them and they don't succeed, I do like it. Anybody? No, no, not me. Yeah, everybody does. Everybody's been there before. And man, that is something sick in the heart, isn't it? Something messed up when we can't celebrate one another and when good things happen to people, we get upset. And when bad things happen to people, we rejoice. Deep down, we say, oh, that's terrible. But deep down, we're like, yes. Because what that does is it makes me feel better about myself. Maybe I can go beyond them now. So we're getting at some issues. Now, he lists eight relational issues, doesn't he? And the reason being, because in Galatia, their, their relationships are all messed up. They're divisive. They're arguing all the time. And see, we think that this list is actually for people who aren't church members. But let me tell you something. Where do a lot of these things happen? Right in the church. So that's why he's writing it to the church. Now he goes on, and he lists some more, but he's saying you need to check your relationships if you want to know the flesh is at work. And then he lists these last three, and he says murders, drunkenness. We all know what drunkenness is. It's drinking too much alcohol. And then lastly, revelries. And that's a big fancy word, but some some translations will translate it orgies. But literally what it is, is it's a drunken party where people just have freedom in their sexuality. That's what a revelry is. And so our, today in our world, what it is is, it, matter of fact, if you go to college, you're going to find a place where revelries take place a lot. Anybody amen me? That's where, you, for them it used to be worshiping of idol gods that led them into, the, into that, but now it's, it's what happens at our universities. So in verse 21 he says this, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now that's maybe the strongest verse I ever read that just kind of really got to me and said, but I thought I was saved, God. He said, but son, are you doing all these things? Is this your identity? Have you said that these are things that you're going to do because you just can't do any different? I said, yeah. He said, well, then you're not inheriting the kingdom of God. And he says, I'm going to tell you why. The reason you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God is because by your behavior, you are actually demonstrating that the way you are living is, is you are saying, I don't want heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing my kingdom on this earth. And in this kingdom, there is going to be no sin. There's going to be no sexual immorality. There's not going to be any hatred or discord or anger or wrath. There's not going to be any of these things. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right now, if you want that kingdom to come, he says, you are beginning to head in that direction right now. But if you choose to live this lifestyle, and this lifestyle so becomes a part of your identity, you are actually declaring by the way that you live that I don't want heaven. I'd rather live this way. And people say, but this is so weird because we, we believe that if people just say a prayer, that they'll go to heaven when they die. That's ridiculous. Saying the prayer is a way to begin the act of faith that is a forever act of faith, where you're constantly being transformed. Yes, salvation can begin with a prayer, but if it's not ongoing past that, then it was never salvation in the first place. Amen? And so he's saying... By your very nature, by the way you're living, you're keeping heaven at bay. And you know, there's a reason that these things are called vices. You know, you've heard them called vices, and that's because they grip you in such a way that even when you try to get out of them, you're still locked into them. So, here's, here's, here's the good news as he switches, and in verse 22 and 23, then he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? He says, now, you can choose to live in the flesh or you can begin to walk in the Spirit and you can begin to cultivate these fruits over time. And this is Jesus-centered character. And he says, the first thing is love. The first thing is love. Now, love is agape, right? This is, this is self-sacrificial love. This means I will lay down my life for another person. And you know, in the Bible, there are actually four kinds of love. There are actually... There's agape, which is self-sacrificial love. It's a choice. Love is not an emotion. Love is not how you feel. Love is an action in the Bible, which means I will put this person before myself. I will sacrifice my self-interest in order for the betterment of this person to take place. And it's something that God wants to produce in our hearts. But there are four kinds of love in the Bible in, in the Greek language. There's, there's agape, there's phileo, there is storge, and there's eros. Now, what we talk about is eros. It's the word we get erotic from because it's sensual pleasure. And a lot of times we will say, I love that or I love this person. And really what we're saying is not that we love that person in this way, but that we have a sensual desire for that person. That's how actually our culture has defined love based on that term and not agape. Not Jesus-centered, self-sacrificial love. But he says, that's what I'm trying to produce in a person. And then he says, joy and peace. Now see, joy and peace is actually a decision that I make and I can cultivate joy and peace in my life 
Not based on my circumstances in life. Because let me tell you something. Jesus even said it. He said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And my peace I leave with you, and my peace I give unto you. Not as this world gives, I give it unto you. He's saying in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of trial, you can have joy and you can have peace because you know what I've done for you. You know that I live on the inside of you. And no matter what is going on in your life, in this moment, I'm working all things together for your good and ultimately I am your redemption and you will see me face to face and no matter what happens to you in this life I will use it to make you better and make you look more like me and all of a sudden no matter what I face I realize that God is not taken by surprise and I can choose joy and I can choose peace and joy listen the Bible talks about a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory I want some more of that It talks about a peace that passes all understanding. A literal peace that comes in and begins to push back anxiety and fear and worry. Amen? He says God wants to produce that in your life. Then he says, patience, kindness, and goodness. Now these are all relational, right? Long-suffering, patience, because y'all all know some people that get on your nerves, right? And they get on your nerves... But when patience is produced, you realize, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that God, that Jesus died for on the cross. And this person is super annoying. But you know what? I'm I'm super annoying too. And just as much as they get on my nerves, I probably get on their nerves. So not only that, I can now choose, rather than reacting, and just reacting out of anger or frustration and saying something negative and poor and and all this, I can choose to respond. I can be patient with that person. I can deal with suffering, and I I can keep no record of wrongs. I can let this thing go, and I can actually respond in kindness, and I can respond in goodness to this person. Next one he says is faithfulness. Faithfulness is constancy. It's being a source of stability in the lives of other people. Now, I'm going to say something right now. Some people, especially in church world, they have a real hard time with commitment. Y'all agree with me on this? For some reason, you have, to, you have to begin to evaluate your heart and see, why do I have such a hard time committing to a group of people? And people will run from church to church and go from person to person trying to find somewhere and trying to find a place to get rooted and all this stuff and and they just run around and really it's because of a lack of faithfulness and you say well I'm looking for the right place or I'm looking for the right people you ain't never going to find the right people people are jacked up everywhere what you're going to have to realize is that that is the condition of all people but God has called you to love in the midst of struggles and he's called you to be loyal even when you disagree with people And He's called you to be faithful and constant. And if you say, I cannot tell you. It's almost like about 75% of the people, I wish people wouldn't even do it, but people will come up to me and make me a promise and a vow that they don't even have to keep. Like I'm not not requiring it of them, but they will come up and make that vow. And it's almost like if they make the vow, it's guaranteed they ain't going to do it. I almost go ahead and check it off that they ain't going to do it. Just go ahead and do it and don't even tell me about it. And I'm not saying that from my perspective. I'm saying that from everybody's perspective. Why not just do it and not even say it? Why not just remain faithful? Just remain constant and don't try to bolster your own integrity by saying it. Because when you make a vow and you don't come through on that, people are going to begin to say, man, this person's, they're not, they're not loyal. They're not going to hang on. They're not going to be there when, when I need them. The next one is gentleness. And this is just not being harsh or strong-willed over people. 
And then lastly, self-control, which is super interesting because self-control, you would think, well, if the Spirit's taking over my life, I, I should lose control, shouldn't I? We, we pray the prayer all the time, God, more of you and less of me. Let me tell you something. The most Spirit-filled person is actually the most human person you will ever find. And when the Holy Spirit takes over your life, you don't lose control, you gain self-control. You have control over your decisions, your impulses, your reactions. You gain self-control so that you are the one choosing what you do in every situation and every circumstance in life. Y'all can come to music. See, we think that the Spirit makes us less ourselves. But what I'm going to tell you is that the Holy Spirit makes you more yourself. Some of you all, you don't even fully realize exactly who you are yet because you're not fully in communion with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you less of who you are. The Holy Spirit makes you more of who you are. The Holy Spirit does not make you less human. The Holy Spirit makes you more human. Verse 24 and 25, it says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, this is not automatic. Because even though you are living in the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you're walking in the Spirit day by day. You can be a Christian and choose to not walk in the Spirit. He's saying you have to make a conscious decision. If you're going to crucify the flesh, you've got to make a conscious decision to walk in the Spirit and crucify the flesh. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is... No longer, right, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, guess what? you got a new person living on the inside of you. And 2,000 years ago on the cross, your old nature was crucified with Jesus. And every morning when I wake up and I feel whatever, maybe I'm frustrated, maybe I'm fearful, maybe I'm angry, maybe I'm dealing with a situation that is a struggle, I preach the gospel to myself and I remind myself that my old nature, that old dude that used to do messed up stuff all the time, was crucified on the cross with Jesus 2,000 years ago. And I remind myself, listen self, you don't get to be that way because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of the living God lives on the inside of you and He is at work right now producing love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. He's at work changing you, making you look more like Jesus today no matter what you feel like. And if anything gets in my heart that begins to tear away at that love, I get at it immediately. I pluck that up. If somebody frustrates, if I get angry at somebody, I'll go to that person. I'll say, listen, we we need to deal with this right now. I forgive you. I need you to forgive me. We need to deal with this thing. Because I can't let this stuff get into my garden and deal with this stuff. Now, you know, here's the thing. The Bible says make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Let me tell you something, folks. If this, if this dumb phone right here is causing you to sin, get you a flip phone. Yeah. Do something. Get a landline. Praise God. I cannot tell you the number of people that are committing sinful actions because of their phone. Looking at garbage. And the Bible doesn't say set the flesh to the side. It says kill the flesh. Don't play with it. Execute it. Put it to death. And for some of you, you're making provision every day for the flesh and say, I don't know why I fall back into that. I don't know why I get back into it. Put the thing to death. 
make the steps you have to make to keep from being falling back into that snare and that same temptation. Here's the last thing I'm going to read. Chapter 6, verse 7 through 10. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. He's saying, look, whatever you sow to in your life on a daily basis, you're either sowing seed to the flesh or you're sowing seed to the Spirit. And whichever one, you're going to produce a harvest. And he says, look, if you've been sowing to the Spirit, I know you've been struggling, but if you've been in the Word of God, you've been in prayer, you've been sowing to the Spirit, he says, don't grow weary because in due season, all of a sudden that fruit is going to begin to grow. And you're going to start to see that fruit and the change is going to come and the breakthrough is going to happen and things are going to change in your life and in the lives of people around you. But he's saying, what are you sowing to? He's saying, whatever you're sowing behind the scenes in your private life, that's what you're going to begin to produce the fruit of. He says, pay attention to that. Let's stand to our feet just for a moment.